us, but it's good to see you this morning. My name's Cameron, one of the pastors here. It's my joy to preach a word to you from Matthew 16, 13 through 20 that I'm calling the question that matters the most. The question that matters the most. So in our lives, we will all have to face crucial questions. And how we answer these questions have the potential to literally alter the trajectory of our lives, don't they? For example, if you're a young person, will you go to college? Where will you go to college and what will you study? How you answer that could change your life. If you're driving down the road and breaking the speed limit, you look up in your rearview mirror and you see blue lights. And a question comes to your mind, hey, should I hammer down or pull over? Uh, the way you answer that question has the potential to alter the course of your life to a degree. The past couple of years, I've had to answer some massively crucial questions in my own life. About two years ago, I met a guy in Austin, Texas named Chris Oruska, and he eventually asked me, hey, would you consider moving your family to Omaha, Nebraska to serve as a pastor at City Light? And so by saying yes, we gained a brand new faith family. It's been some of the best two years of our lives, but also... We gained a brand new line item in our personal budget called Front End Alignments as we travel the surface of Mars every day as we go about our lives in Omaha. Lord, help us, Jesus. Give us some asphalt. <laughs> Even more significantly, nearly two years ago, a pastor stood on a stage and asked me, Cameron, will you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And my affirmative to that question gave me a beautiful bride a brand new identity as a husband and in-laws for the first time. And I'll say no more right there. But we all have to face these kinds of questions. And as life-altering as they can be, there is still a greater question to be answered. There's a question that matters the most. And we see that in this section of Scripture this morning. And it matters the most because it comes from none other than Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God himself. And he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this is the most important question because not only does it have earthly ramifications, but your answer determines your eternal destiny as well. Who do you say I am? So here's the big idea of the message this morning. When we confess Christ as Lord, we gain a new identity and a brand new family. This is the response, the action that Christ is trying to draw out of us by asking this question. Now, this question comes to the disciples against a really interesting backdrop. To this point in the book of Matthew, you've seen lots of different responses to Jesus. Some have outright rejected him. His own family has persecuted him. Some are intrigued by him. Some are only casually following him. And then the disciples, they're not perfect men, but they are fervently following Jesus. And as I've studied this, I believe there's no accident that he leads them to this question in this particular city. Because Caesarea Philippi was known as an incredibly religiously diverse city. Towering above Jesus as he asked this question was a beautiful, immensely large marble temple dedicated to the emperor. And the city also contained the temple to the Syrian god Baal and the Greek god known as Pan. Kind of underwhelming Pan compared to Baal, but I digress. But against this backdrop, Jesus seems to be saying to them and us, hey, it's actually time that you make your choice. 
You've seen my teachings. You can't question my authoritative actions. You have seen that I'm superior to all other gods. Jesus has made his case clear that he's the Messiah, but who do you say that I am? How are you responding to me? Are you ready to go all in and make me the Lord of your life? And Sidila, I say to you, the same question is posed to us against a similar backdrop in 2019. There are myriads of opinions about who Jesus is and supposed multiple pathways that get you to God. But the testimony of God's word is clear. Jesus alone is the Son of God. And salvation is found only by trusting in his name. So my question to you is, who do you say Jesus is? Have you grappled with him? Have you grappled with the biblical Jesus? How are you responding to him? And so my point this morning, my aim this morning, is to give you space to do that, to wrestle with that question. And so as we unpack the big idea, here's the first truth from that big idea. Number one, you have to confess Jesus as Lord to enter the kingdom of God. You've got to confess Jesus as Lord to get in to heaven. Notice again verses 13 and 14. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Hey, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So when Jesus comes into the city, he basically is just surveying his disciples. Hey, based on the popular cultural opinion of who I am, who are people saying that I am? And the answer is, well, basically they're saying that you're a prophet. They acknowledge that, yes, there is something striking about this man. He's maybe a good man, he's perhaps a godly man, but but nobody had arrived at the conclusion yet that he's the God-man. Nobody thought Jesus was the Messiah as we've been seeing because he did not meet their cultural expectations. Now, lest we think that we're any better than them, we need to recognize that we too have tendencies to put views on Jesus in tune with our own cultural understanding. We have a sinful tendency to make up a Jesus according to our own liking that doesn't look like the complete picture of the biblical Jesus we see in Scripture. You know, for example, some people only like what I call the hippified Jesus. Okay, if that's a word, hippified Jesus. He's envisioned as a pretty good moral teacher so long as he doesn't get in the way of my marijuana. He's docile gracious, accepting, loving, forgiving. He kind of floats around in a bathrobe with a perpetual smile on his face. And that's the Jesus that a lot of people like. But listen, y'all, he's watered down. He's many of those attributes, but his discipleship demands are done away with by many people. And they can't fathom that Jesus would actually serve as judge, but the Bible makes it clear that he is the judge, isn't he? Then other people, call what I, other people like what I call the bring the pain Jesus. Bring the pain Jesus. And they can't wait for Jesus to come back someday with Thor's hammer of judgment to smite all the dirty sinners they see around them. I mean, they geek out about eschatology. They, their, their mouths water at the prospect of Jesus coming back again and separating the sheep from the goats. So this group, they champion truth, but they minimize his grace and his mercy. And they ignore the fact that Christ was actually popular, likable, with sinners. He went to their parties so he could reach out to them. We have to understand that when we try to fabricate a Jesus according to our own desires, we really aren't interested 
in relating to the one true God as the Bible reveals himself to be to us. We've simply made a God out of our own desires. So I would encourage all of us, as opposed to being presumptuous, reading into Jesus, it's imperative we slow down and we take into account what the Bible actually says about Jesus, what Christ is revealing about himself. And just real quick, a passage like John 1.14 gives us balance about Jesus. He's full of grace and truth. And Christ is making clear in the book of Matthew that he's the Messiah. He's the long-anticipated one. He is God. And listen, since Jesus is God, he gets to set the terms. Since God created us, he reserves the right to press into our values. And then here Jesus decides to press into the disciples at this point. So we pick up in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now that word you is a second person plural in the Greek. So redneck Jesus might say, hey, who do y'all say that I am? So he's speaking to the whole group. And Peter, serving as their spokesman, answers in verse 16, well, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Not just a good man, not just a godly man, but you're the God man. You're the Christ. And so amid the, amid the popular opinions, the heap of the opinions about Jesus, Peter actually gets it right, that he's the Messiah sent from heaven to earth to save his people. But then Jesus gut checks Peter just a little bit in verse 17 when he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he affirms them and says, hey, Peter, you actually got it right, but you need to also know that you did not get there on your own. The disciples were untrained, ordinary men, and men far more intelligent than Peter and his band of merry men did not see that Jesus was the Messiah. And so Jesus asserts again, just as he did in the parable of the sower. Remember my last sermon that, hey, the reason you're seeing me rightly is that the heavenly Father has revealed this to you. And so again, another theological truth or another reminder of this truth is that a true understanding of Jesus comes not by human invention, but by divine revelation. Again, that was one of the main points of the parable of the sower. And when you see these truths pop up again and again, Christ is trying to press a point, trying to press home a point for us that our minds are darkened to the truth of who, God's, who God is. But the Spirit of God can breathe on us and give us divine illumination to see Jesus rightly. And so before we move on, there's a couple of implications here. First, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to relate to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. You have to confess him as Lord. He's not just a good moral teacher or a good example to follow in fact, if you've tried, you've seen that it's futile to do this. You can't follow his example in your own power. Your sins will keep you from that. So you only receive salvation when you recognize that your sins keep you from God. And then Jesus is the remedy to sin sent from heaven to earth to save us. And just the next paragraph in this discourse, we see his ultimate mission. And that's that Jesus would die for the sins of the world to get us reconnected to God. So have you trusted in him alone in his work for your salvation? Are you relating to him as a sinner and you're a sinner and you're throwing yourself at his feet for his mercy that he's the great savior? 
You have to do that to go to heaven. But secondly, if you have confessed Jesus as the Christ, I would encourage you to let it sink in afresh that you got there by grace alone. That salvation's a gift from God. You didn't achieve it. It wasn't you that made the difference. You did not come to this understanding because you were cute or sincere or special or religious and it was just a matter of time. No, God in his grace, he chose to reveal Jesus to you. And all you did was simply respond. And this reality, this gift of divine illumination, this should cause gratitude to well up in our hearts again and again and again. So just don't take for granted this morning that you rightly relate to Jesus as your Savior. God gave you eyes to see. So to get in, we have to confess Christ as Lord. We have to lose our lives to find salvation in him. But after we do that, we gain some beautiful new realities, don't we? And so big truth number two is this. We get a new identity. Number two, we get a new identity when we confess Jesus as Lord. I love this right here. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. All Bar-Jonah means is son of Jonah. Jonah was Simon, Peter's father. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So it's fascinating to me that many times in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, when people have encounters with the living God, they get name changes, don't they? And these name changes serve to reflect their brand new identities. So in the Old Testament, Abram becomes who? Abraham. And that that name means a father of a multitude. And that came to pass. We are literally sitting here this morning, spiritual descendants of Father Abraham. And then Jacob became Israel, speaking to the fact that his 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, even in our context, historically... Last names have represented family identities and vocations. So raise your hand this morning if your last name is Smith. Let me see them. Okay, you can put them down. If you're a Smith, it's likely that somewhere in your past family history, there were blacksmiths. Your great-great-great-grandpappy probably forged steel and iron and made horseshoes of some sort. Raise your hand if you're a baker. If you're a baker here this morning. I see a couple bakers in the back. I know Todd actually is living out that last name right now in his company, in his family business. But if you're a baker, pastries are probably in your family's past. Names are connected to identities. And individuals often change their names for aspirational reasons, for what they aspire to be. Rock stars change their names envisioning future success and to have a memorable name when they supposedly get famous someday. For example, Bono. Very memorable, right? A generational rock star. That's more memorable than Paul David Houston. Have you heard the new Paul David Houston track? No, I haven't, but I've heard of Bono, okay? Lady Gaga pops a little more than Stephanie Joanne Angelina Germanotta, okay? I'm glad she went with Lady Gaga. Beautiful name. Gaga, a lot more memorable. But listen, y'all, we need to understand that when the God of the Bible speaks and gives us a name, It's not just aspirational power. When God names, it carries creational power. When he names somebody and gives them a new identity, it actually comes to pass. So what I'm saying here is we're seeing that that renaming of Peter that happened back in John 142. Remember, Jesus renamed Simon Barjona Peter, 
It's proving to be predictive in Peter's life. God is at work in this impulsive man's life, and he's creating something stable. Peter literally means rock. So he's making clear that, hey, your new identity is going to be coming to pass. I'm going to take this hot mess of a man and use him in unlikely and very significant ways. I mean, think about what we know of Peter, and then think about this statement he makes in verse 18. I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. So he's saying, hey, there's actually something foundational in you, Peter. You might not be able to see it yet. Now, this is a hotly debated verse that lots of people like to quibble over. They like to say, hey, who is the rock? And commentators disagree, and they have for ever it seems like, but I tend to side with the interpretation in the context that Peter is the rock here in the context. Now, we know ultimately that Jesus Christ is the big rock, right? That the church is only built on Jesus, but I believe when Peter's referred to the rock, it means that he and the apostles will be the practical outworking by which the church of God is built. Let me say that one more time. When Peter's called the rock, it means that he will be the practical means, he and the apostles, by which the church is built as they preach the gospel and confess Jesus. And we can't argue that when Peter launched out, that he played a key role in the foundation of the church. Remember Acts chapter 2? He opens his mouth preaches the gospel, what happens? 3,000 people get saved, so he was certainly foundational in the life of the early church. Now, this does not mean that he had greater authority than the other apostles. Ephesians 2.20 says that the household of God was built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and prophets, plural, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he wasn't the first among equals. He was equal with all of them in his apostolic work. And this also does not mean that Peter was infallible without sin, as many Catholics make him out to be. Why do we know that? Well, we've learned a lot about Peter already. In the very next paragraph, what happens? Uh, After this beautiful confession of Jesus, Jesus turns and says, wait a minute, Peter, get behind me, devil, Satan, because Peter was trying to prevent Christ from suffering. So what I'm saying is Peter was foundational, but not perfect. He, will, he is and will continue to be a work in progress. Nevertheless, Peter received a new and significant identity when he confessed Christ as Lord. And Sidilah, I want to say to you that the same thing happens for us when we confess Christ as Lord. Along with the apostles, When we embrace Jesus as our Savior, we get brand new identities as children of God. And don't take for granted how glorious that is. Let me read again for you Romans 8. We studied this just last summer, verses 15 through 17. And let these words wash over you. If you're having any kind of identity crisis about who you are, what kind of worth you have, listen to these words. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Think about it this way. Since Christ is the heir of God the Father, 
It means he is perfectly accepted by God the Father. He is the benefactor of all of his goodness. Therefore, if we are fellow heirs with Christ, it means the exact same thing is true of us. In Jesus, we're perfectly accepted by God the Father. We have a secure identity in his Son. We are the benefactors of his glorious grace and goodness. We receive peace with God and brand new purpose for our lives like Peter and those other fishermen found. And church, this is good and freeing news because so much of our lives is spent trying to escape our past and build brand new particular identities, trying to bolster our resume so we can please other people. And again, we we do this by trying to pull the Taylor Swift and by shaking off the past, right? We try to escape who we once were. Then we work our fingers to the bone trying to forge a better version of ourselves. If we're honest, we all in this room have past labels that might continue to haunt us. These could be self-imposed or things that people have actually said about us. And so we've all probably been trying to, dis- to escape descriptors like loser, worthless, not good enough, orphan, whore, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. And the list goes on and on and on. Then out of that shadow, we try to build new identities so we can be accepted by society, by each other. And we double down to present ourselves as intelligent, Put together, we curate our social media accounts so nobody can see any blemishes. We want to be successful, popular, the life of the party, a good preacher and a good leader. I mean, not even pastors are immune from building our identities on something apart from Jesus. And the list goes on and on and on. Or sometimes people simply give up, throw in the towel, and they assume they'll always be what they've always been. But see, like, this is why the gospel is so freeing. Because in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to measure up. We no longer have to strive to build identities because Christ measured up for us. Amen? He lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. And then he died the death that we deserve to die on the cross. He took all of our past labels, the ugliness, the sin on his shoulders, and he did away with all of that. He literally on the cross, he erased our past. And he replaces our past indiscretions with his righteousness the moment we trust in him. So if you're so busy and tired from trying to fight, to curate, to cultivate a new identity, why don't you simply rest this morning and receive this gracious new identity that's already been bestowed upon you by Jesus? If you trust in him, it's the supreme identity. It's the title of adopted sons and daughter of the heavenly father. And just as it happened with Peter, over time, this new identity will actually be worked out in your living, in your real life day to day. Hear this, receive this from the Lord this morning. In Christ, you're a brand new creation. Rest in that reality. That's your new identity. So when we confess Jesus, we we get that. A new title. It's freeing, it's liberating. The number three, even better news is we get a brand new family. That's the third big truth this morning. Verse 18 says, and I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I don't have a lot of time to talk about the nuances of ecclesiology. That's just the study of the church. But simply put, the church is an assembly of Christ's followers. That's all it is. It's just the fact that 
Christ's followers, we gather together in local assemblies. The Bible commands us to gather together in local congregations, and these congregations are literally located around the world. And the reason that our mission is to multiply disciples and churches, we believe that's the the mission that we see in the Bible. And our rhythm is to what? Gather and scatter? We believe that's thoroughly biblical because God's people are commanded by Jesus to gather together for worship and then to scatter for mission as we take the gospel to the world. And so I want you to see in this final point about this new family you gain is that this brand new family gives you tremendous purpose. You get a new identity, then you get a brand new mission and purpose. So first of all, understand that being a part of the church allows you to actually be a part of something bigger than yourselves. I mean, this is something that we all long for, don't we? That our lives would matter, that we would have significance, that we would use our 80 years well if God gives us that, and the church actually allows for that to happen. We all desire significance, and our desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves is especially revealed in our passion for sports. I mean, I think that sports passion reveals the root of this. We all have great passion, don't we, for our favorite teams. We spend money on tickets. We wear jerseys with the last names of 20-something-year-old men on our backs. You know, we go to ball games and buy season tickets, and we want to cheer them on. We long for championships because we all want to be a part of greatness, don't we? But it's inevitable that teams never stay high on that mount, do they? Uh, If you were a part of the Huskers fan base, the football fan base in the 90s, you got a taste of greatness. Tennessee fans in the 90s, we got a taste of greatness. But eventually, the greatness faded away. And we can commiserate together. There have been decades of futility since then, right? I'll have to be honest with you. When Tennessee got beat by Purdue just a few nights ago, I was far more disappointed crush than I should have been. It took me about four hours to get over it. I finally did. It's just that we want to be a part of something great that never made the final four and we're so close. But listen, City Light, to be a part of a church is to be a real part of the greatest team to ever exist. And the greatness of the church will never fade. The church will never falter. It will always be the chief means that God uses to bring glory to himself And you get his gospel to the world. I love when Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That phrase, gates of hell, is a Jewish idiom for the power of death. So he's saying that, hey, even death itself cannot stop the Messiah. Death cannot snuff out his messengers. In fact, the beautiful upside-down picture, the reality of the gospel is that Jesus conquered death through his death. Think about it this way, another way to say it. Christ's life was radically destabilized. But through his death, he destroyed the only power, the power of Satan that could ever shake us. So if our identity is in him, if we rest in Jesus, if we cling to our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we bear each other's burdens, even in our suffering, we will never be shaken. I mean, what a beautiful promise that is. And even if you were to be persecuted and to die for the cause of Jesus... Throughout church history, martyrdom has had a multiplicative effect. It's crazy how it works out. I mean, persecution in the book of Acts was the catalyst God used to expand the gospel. Church father Tertullian put it this way, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
And to use a southern expression, if this falling quote don't fire you up, then your wood's wet, okay? Let me read this for you. It should pop up on the screen. This is by J.C. Ryle. Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, and burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and go to their own place. The true church, though, outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. And to that I say amen and amen. Now, secondly, being a part of the church gives us purpose in that we actually get to play a real part in the mission. So we get to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, but we actually get to play a real part in God's global mission. So this is so much better than sitting around a recliner, hand in your pants with a beer in your hand, watching your favorite team because you get to get in the game. You get to put the footstool of the recliner down and, and, and jump in when you're involved in the church. Verse 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we could sum this up by simply saying that Peter and the apostles, they were commissioned to preach the gospel. That's how this loosening and binding happens. And so one more old dead guy, bear with me. I think that reformer Zwingli, he sums up our position, the Protestant position well here. He says that the keys are nothing else than this. The preaching of the pure unfalsified word of the gospel whoever believes this gospel will be free of his sins and be saved but whoever does not believe this gospel well they'll be damned and so said it another way maybe a bit more gently um, under Christ's authority with the gospel we can actually say to people we have the authority to say hey if you trust in Jesus you'll be free from your shackles and your sins forever But if you do not trust in Christ, you will be enslaved by your sin forever. So think about how glorious this is. As we go out and make disciples of Jesus in our neighborhoods and among the nations, we are continuing on the foundation that the apostles laid. I mean, think about how how significant this is that every person in this room has a real role to play when it comes to ensuring that the local church continues to have a vibrant expression around the world. You have a role to play in that, to continue the greatest team that's ever been had on the face of the planet. And so just what a glorious privilege and an incredible responsibility. And by the way, this is why we're so passionate about church planting. We want to keep building on the apostolic foundation. Well, City Light, let me close this out simply the same way I begin us this morning. You have spent your life wrestling with having to answer crucial questions. But have you ever slowed down long enough to answer the question that matters the most, the most important question you'll ever face? And it comes from Jesus Christ himself, the God-man, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Who do you say that I am? Not the person next to you, not your family, not your community, but make it personal this morning. Wrestle with this as we respond. Who do you say that I am? Think long and hard about how you're responding to that question. 
And if you've not trusted in him, if you've not responded positively to the message of the gospel, I would beg you to not leave this morning. Don't leave this building without turning from your sins, trusting in him and confessing him as the Lord of your life. For the Bible makes it clear this is the only way that you'll see the kingdom of heaven. Let's stand together. Let me pray for us. Then we'll respond to the gospel. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, God, we thank you that you have revealed uh, yourself to us in your word. God, we could have a God who's arbitrary, who's distant, but God, no, you stepped into creation to save us, and you also gave us instruction on how to be saved. And God, we've been made clear today that the only way we get to see you, spend eternity with you, is to confess Christ as Lord. So God, my prayer is twofold this morning. Uh, that for people here that haven't responded to you, who haven't went all in and made you the Lord of their lives, even now, God, would they do that? Uh, would your spirit move and stir hearts and just give people eyes to see? And God, may we get to celebrate salvation today as we leave this place. Then secondly, God, for those of us in Christ, God, may we just be fixated on our new identity uh, God, if we've been trying to build a false identity on something else, may we repent of that and just rest in you and what's said of us, not what other people think about us. And again, God, stir us up. If we came in a little bit kind of mundane, like a daisical, uh, may this reality that you breathed on us cause us to see you for who you are. May that cause us to our hearts to well up in worship. So God, we ask this in your name. Amen. So just real simply this morning. Uh, respond in your seat where you're at. Uh, do business with God from your heart to his heart. But we'd love if God's working in you to get you to help process that with you. So we always have a prayer team in the back. Look for lanyards, yellow and orange back there. And there's pastors usually back there as well. So Willie, lead us, my friend, as we respond to the gospel.